Chapter Six of Matilda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Matilda by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Chapter Six. My chamber was in a retired part of the house, and looked upon the garden so that no sound of the other inhabitants could reach it, and here, in perfect solitude, I wept for several hours. When a servant came to ask me if I would take food, I learnt from him that my father had returned, and was apparently well, and this relieved me from a load of anxiety, yet I did not cease to weep bitterly. At first, as the memory of former happiness contrasted to my present despair, came across me. I gave relief to the oppression of heart that I felt, by words, and groans, and heart-rending sighs. But nature became wearied, and this more violent grief gave place to a passionate but mute flood of tears. My whole soul seemed to dissolve in them. I did not wring my hands, or tear my hair, or utter wild exclamations. But as Boccaccio describes the intense and quiet grief of Sigismunda over the heart of Guiscardo, I sat, with my hands folded, silently letting fall a perpetual stream from my eyes. Such was the depth of my emotion, that I had no feeling of what caused my distress. My thoughts even wandered to many indifferent objects. But still, neither moving limb nor feature, my tears fell, until, as if the fountains were exhausted, they gradually subsided, and I awoke to life as from a dream. When I had ceased to weep, reason and memory returned upon me, and I began to reflect with greater calmness on what had happened, and how it became me to act. A few hours only had passed, but a mighty revolution had taken place with regard to me. The natural work of years had been transacted since the morning. My father was as dead to me, and I felt for a moment as if he, with white hairs, were laid in his coffin, and I, youth vanished in approaching age, were weeping at his timely dissolution. But it was not so. I was yet young, oh, far too young, nor was he dead to others. But I, most miserable, must never see or speak to him again. I must fly from him with more earnestness than from my greatest enemy. In solitude or in cities I must never more behold him. That consideration made me breathless with anguish, and impressing itself on my imagination, I was unable for a time to follow up any train of ideas. Ever after this, I thought, I would live in the most dreary seclusion, I would retire to the continent and become a nun, not for religion's sake, for I was not a Catholic, but that I might be for ever shut out from the world. I should there find solitude, where I might weep, and the voices of life might never reach me. But my father, my beloved and most wretched father, would he die? Would he never overcome the fierce passion that now held pitiless dominion over him? Might he not, many, many years hence, 
when age had quenched the burning sensations that he now experienced, might he not then be again a father to me? This reflection unwrinkled my brow, and I could feel, and I wept to feel it, a half-melancholy smile draw from my lips their expression of suffering. I dared indulge better hopes for my future life. Years must pass, but they would speed lightly away, winged by hope, or if they passed heavily, still they would pass, and I had not lost my father for ever. Let him spend another sixteen years of desolate wandering. Let him once more utter his wild complaints to the vast woods, and the tremendous cataracts of another clime. Let him again undergo fearful danger, and soul-quelling hardships. Let the hot sun of the south again burn his passion-worn cheeks, and the cold night rains fall on him, and chill his blood. To this life, miserable father, I devote thee. Go, be thy days passed with savages, and thy nights under the cope of heaven. Be thy limbs worn, and thy heart chilled, and all youth be dead within thee. Let thy hairs be as snow, thy walk trembling, and thy voice have lost its mellow tones. Let the liquid lustre of thine eyes be quenched, and then return to me, return to thy Matilda, thy child, who may then be clasped in thy loved arms, while thy heart beats with sinless emotion. Go, devoted one, and return thus. This is my curse, a daughter's curse. Go, and return pure to thy child, who will never love aught but thee. These were my thoughts, and with trembling hands I prepared to begin a letter to my unhappy parent. I had now spent many hours in tears and mournful meditation. It was past twelve o'clock, all was at peace in the house, and the gentle air that stole in at my window did not rustle the leaves of the twining plants that shadowed it. I felt the entire tranquillity of the hour, when my own breath and involuntary sobs were all the sounds that struck upon the air. On a sudden I heard a gentle step ascending the stairs. I paused breathless, and as it approached, glided into an obscure corner of the room. The steps paused at my door, but after a few moments they again receded, descended the stairs, and I heard no more. This slight incident gave rise in me to the most painful reflections, nor do I now dare express the emotions I felt. That he should be restless I understood, that he should wander as an unlaid ghost, and find no quiet from the burning hell that consumed his heart. But why approach my chamber? Was not that sacred? I felt almost ready to faint while he had stood there, but I had not betrayed my wakefulness by the slightest motion, though I had heard my own heart beat with violent fear. He had withdrawn. Oh, never, never may I see him again. Tomorrow night the same roof may not cover us. He or I must depart. The mutual link of our destinies is broken. We must be divided by seas, by land. The stars and the sun must not rise at the same period to us. He must not say, looking at the setting crescent of the moon, Matilda now watches its fall. 
No, all must be changed. Be it light with him when it is darkness with me. Let him feel the sun of summer while I am chilled by the snows of winter. Let there be the distance of the antipodes between us. At length the east began to brighten, and the comfortable light of morning streamed into my room. I was weary with watching, and for some time I had combated with the heavy sleep that weighed down my eyelids. But now, no longer fearful, I threw myself on my bed. I sought for repose, although I did not hope for forgetfulness. I knew I should be pursued by dreams, but did not dread the frightful one that I really had. I thought that I had risen, and went to seek my father to inform him of my determination to separate myself from him. I sought him in the house, in the park, and then in the fields and the woods, but I could not find him. At length I saw him at some distance, seated under a tree, and when he perceived me he waved his hand several times, beckoning me to approach. There was something unearthly in his mien that awed and chilled me, but I drew near. When, at a short distance from him, I saw that he was deadly pale, and clothed in flowing garments of white. Suddenly he started up and fled from me. I pursued him. We sped over the fields, and by the skirts of woods, and on the banks of rivers. He flew fast, and I followed. We came at last, methought, to the brow of a huge cliff that overhung the sea, which, troubled by the winds, dashed against its base at a distance. I heard the roar of the waters. He held his course right on towards the brink, and I became breathless with fear, lest he should plunge down the dreadful precipice. I tried to augment my speed, but my knees failed beneath me. Yet I had just reached him, just caught a part of his flowing robe, when he leapt down, and I awoke with a violent scream. I was trembling and my pillow was wet with my tears. For a few moments my heart beat hard. But the bright beams of the sun, and the chirping of the birds, quickly restored me to myself, and I rose with a languid spirit, yet wondering what events the day would bring forth. Some time passed before I summoned courage to ring the bell for my servant, and when she came I still dared not utter my father's name. I ordered her to bring my breakfast to my room, and was again left alone, yet still I could make no resolve, but only thought that I might write a note to my father, to beg his permission to pay a visit to a relation who lived about thirty miles off, and who had before invited me to her house. But I had refused, for then I could not quit my suffering father. When the servant came back, she gave me a letter. "'From whom is this letter?' I asked, trembling. "'Your father left it, madam, with his servant, to be given to you when you should rise.' "'My father left it? Where is he? Is he not here?' "'No, he quitted the house before four this morning.' "'Good God! He is gone! But tell how this was. Speak quick!' Her relation was short. He had gone in the carriage to the nearest town where he took a post-chaise and horses with orders for the London road. He dismissed his servants there, only telling them that he had had a sudden call of business, 
and that they were to obey me as their mistress until his return. End of chapter 6